0: It's really good uh, to see you guys in here this morning. Um, We're going to spend our last message of this kingdom series in the Old Testament this morning with a kind of uh, prophets number two. We'll be in the book of Micah, the book of Micah. And hey, uh, let's be honest and real in here. If you've got your Bible with you and you want to follow along, but you know it'll take you 20 minutes to find Micah, just go to the table of contents in the front. Look at it. If your neighbor judges you, God will judge them. So, right? right? Our value is not based in how fast we find any of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Um, you can follow along on your phone if you want to. You can uh, just listen, look, the, the verses will be on the screen. But I want to remind us of the journey that we have uh, been a part of and that ultimately is our heritage. This is who we are. We are the people of God. We are the ancestral heirs of his work, of his calling of Abraham on down through his faithfulness in Jesus Christ and commissioning and sending of the church of which we are a part. And ultimately, just a reminder for all of us, church is not something you go to ultimately. It's something you're a part of. It's a, the movement of God to help everyone we can, all kinds of people find and follow Jesus Christ. And we're swept up in this. But if you'll remember, God in the beginning creates. He speaks beauty and flavor and diversity into creation. He displays it and paints it all across the canvas where nothing had been. And it's beautiful and it's perfect. And there's wholeness between man and woman. And there's wholeness between God and his creatures, including human beings. And human beings are given dominion over creation to rule and to reign in God's stead for His glory and for the, be- the benefit of creation. And that lasts all of two chapters in Genesis. And then fall comes. Sin enters in through human disobedience and tears apart the wholeness, the shalom, the fabric of God's perfect creation. And God calls a man named Abram changes his name to Abraham and tells him that he's going to create a great people through him and that that people will be a blessing to all peoples. And we see from the very beginning of the creation of the covenant people of God, God's desire that his people might simply represent his glory and his name and his goodness and his redeeming power to the very ends of the earth throughout all of his creation. And so many of us who've been around the church for a long time in our minds with the coming and the faithfulness of Christ on the cross, His crucifixion and resurrection, which we will get to in coming weeks, uh, we hear the story go like this, creation, fall, redemption. But that's not the end. And when that's all we hear... When that's all we hear, over time, we necessarily become the point of the story. It's my salvation, my redemption, which is the high point. And we don't know what to do after that. Redemption has come. And in a sense, the church kind of becomes a cruise ship instead of a church. We become a place where we all board, um, and we entertain and are entertained by one another, but we lose this sense of mission. Because the truth of God's word is that his kingdom story and what we're swept up in goes like this. It's, there's creation. There's the fall. There's redemption. And then there's restoration. There's restoration. God is at work throughout all aspects of his created order. Bringing back together all the pieces that have been broken and fragmented because of sin. And we as children of God redeemed by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ are called to be participants in His restorative mission on earth and how we relate to one another and how we relate relate to uh, the fabric and the structures of society and how we relate to the created world order around us we are to participate in that and I think there's a piece in our souls and if you will the collective memory of our souls that has this sense of longing for a time where things were perfect and we were home it's why there's a sense of uh, ever-present restlessness in us it's why Ecclesiastes says the eyes are always seeing but never satisfied the ears are always hearing but never satisfied It's never enough. It's never enough. Any of you found that, that whatever you thought was going to bring you supreme satisfaction never seems to do that? It may bring you supreme satisfaction for just a little bit. I remember one time buying uh, a truck, a brand new truck. And I'd wanted this kind of truck for a long, long, long time. And I got it, and I was able to have a couple of extra things done on it. By God's grace and mercy, was able just to pay for it, so payments didn't follow me home. So I just drove home, glowing, as if God had shined down his power on me. I got home, I parked my truck, I got out and I looked at it, and I was just like, oh, amen. Um, It just sat there, this perfected piece of American machinery. And sometimes i would just go sit in the back of it and read at the house. That was before we had kids, so we had time for stuff like that. But you know what happened to my passion for that truck over weeks, the first few months? It began to diminish until it was just a truck, until it was just a truck. Anybody ever had that happen to you? Maybe it was with a home. I'm not going to say maybe it was with a spouse, but maybe it was with uh, someone you dated before a spouse, right? Um, The joy and pleasure of that diminished. This is the sense of of testifying truthfulness in us that says we're longing for something that's been lost, but God is restoring. God is restoring. And so much of what the prophets are about, so much of what they testify to, is the fact that Israel lost this this last piece. That not only was God going to redeem fully and finally one day through the coming of the Messiah— But that his people are to be a restorative people. That we're to be engaged in his kingdom work. And whenever we fail to do that, we fail in a very real sense to be his people. Let's look at Micah chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. And 8 is one of these great summary verses that has been uh, an Everest on the plains of Scripture throughout Christian history, throughout the history of the church. and remains that way today. Let's look at Micah. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? In other words, Micah starts out this series of rhetorical questions here saying, what do I have to offer God? What do I have to bring God? Have you ever been in the presence of someone where you needed to bring something, but ultimately no matter what you wanted or needed to bring, you really needed their grace? Maybe like a loan officer at a bank. So however much you were bringing in, you were going to lay it pitifully on their desk and then plead for mercy and grace. Micah is saying, what what do I have to offer God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil, Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And then verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray and we'll continue. Father, these powerful words by your sovereign grace have rippled throughout the story of redemptive history. God, they summarize the entirety of the teaching that you give us in the Old Testament. Father, I pray here that you would apply this to our lives this morning. God, that you would interrupt us. God, that we'd feel the freedom and the joy that only you can give. God, that maybe hearts of begrudging obedience would be replaced with hearts of joyful followers. Leaning on your goodness and mercy. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. May it be so. Amen. When we see Micah 6 here, and we see particularly Micah 6, 8, we see a summary statement. Jesus gives a summary statement that we'll look at in a minute in the New Testament. But a few of these are found throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament that sort of summarize all of the expectations, the requirements, the law of God. In a sense, it is what God wants from his followers. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Verse 8 is given in the context of a people who've already been chosen by God, right? They're already God's covenant people. Acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly or prudently or carefully, intentionally with your God, does not curry favor with God. It responds to God's grace. It is an appropriate response to the redeeming love of God poured out on us in and through Jesus Christ. It doesn't make us the people of God. It reflects the change that should have happened and be happening in our hearts as the people of God. So I just want to pull some things up here. Part of it comes from the entire book of Micah, as this sort of summarizes. But we see throughout the prophets, before we leave this era of God's kingdom history, moving more and more toward its final seasons. One of the things that Micah, along with all the other prophets in our scripture, testify time and time again to is the fact that God is in control of all things at all times. Right now, Micah's on the scene. He's a contemporary of Isaiah, 8th century B.C. And he can see Assyria on the rise. He can see Babylonia on the rise. And Micah actually predicts that Assyria will come down and will conquer and decimate the northern kingdom of Israel. And he also prophesies and sees by God's will that Babylonia will do the same thing to the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where Micah is ministering. Isaiah was ministering in the north to Israel. And in his lifetime, in Micah's lifetime, he sees that happen with Assyria. And he knows it's coming with Judah. I say all this to say the prophets are on the scene during a time of incredible uncertainty and restlessness and fear and despair. They were preaching to people who knew what it was like to not know what was coming. He was preaching to people who knew what it was like to look around and see their society in decay, to see their religious institutions in decay and to not know where God was or what was happening. They said at the center of world empires, yet they were so small and so tiny. But again and again and again, the prophets, even in the passage we read today, part of what Micah is saying here is, despite all that, this, uh, all that is going on around you, may you focus on what it means to be the people of God, because he's in control of the world. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright says that the prophets assert that Yahweh is God not merely of the tiny kingdom of kingdoms of Israel and Judah but also of all nations all the time. That God is in control. And when it feels like so many things are out of control and we know that really they are they just are. But we have a heightened sense of awareness of that right now. When we walk through times where we sense so much is changing, there's so much uncertainty, and we're trying to to keep up with it and trying to find out who are we in the midst of it, we're called to find our confidence, our peace, and our joy in the truth that our God reigns. Our God reigns. He is still in control no matter what's going on. No matter what's happening in your life personally, no matter where you are financially, no matter what kind of tension may be in your home, no matter what's going on with one of your kids, with one of your parents or both of your parents or all of your parents, however many parents you might have, God is still in control. And he's good. His control would be terrifying if he weren't good. But he is good. He's the one who holds supreme power without any temptation to use it for evil. He is good. But we also find here that our treatment of the other matters to God. Our treatment of the other matters to God. What I mean by that is our treatment of those who have less or are less in society than we are. People who don't have positions of affluence, positions of power. People that are pushed out to the edge where their voice isn't heard or can't be heard. God primarily judges his people based on how we respond and how we relate to those that we just would consider other. They're different than us. They may not have a a seat at the same tables that we can get a seat at. Let's look at this. When he says in verse 8 that God has shown you, O oh mortal, and really he's talking collectively Israel, and we would say collectively today the church, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you being his people? Not require of you to become his people, right? But require of you being his people. It's to act justly, to love mercy, or to love merciless almost, to have love that unends, love that just continues to flow out to people and to walk humbly or prudently, wisely, consistently with your God. Let's get a little picture of the other and how God has summarized this in other parts of his word. Deuteronomy twenty four seventeen says this, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice. Or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. In other words, to take something that a widow needs to secure money that you're lending to her. And we don't have it on the screens here, but if you look at verse 18 right after this verse, you see a reasoning for this. He says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. He said, don't get arrogant. Don't begin to believe that you are who you are and where you are because you're that awesome. God says, I've been at work in your life. I've carried you along. And I struggled with, I'll be honest with you um, this week, like I struggled with how real to be preaching this because I know you can only preach so much of what can barely be heard at a given time. You've got to preach truth in bites that can be chewed up and swallowed. But I will tell you, We live in a place here, and I come from a place here, where these kinds of messages, if you take the Old Testament seriously, are often seen as political instead of biblical. And it's a shame that the people of God can't discern the difference. That how we treat foreigners or immigrants, and how we treat orphans or foster kiddos, or the entire foster and adoption system right now, how we care for the poor and for single moms... Not just single moms. Obviously, we want to give help to any kind of single parents, single dads. We want to help moms with husbands deployed. Um, widows. That widow category would extend in our society, as I said. Single moms, whatever. That, that, this, these are biblical mandates. This is how God says His people whose hearts have been actually transformed relate to the others around them, to those that may not have the same resources, benefit, or voice that they have. Hear it from Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 3. This is what the Lord says, Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. This is so significant, guys. This is at the very heart of what's happening in the life of Israel every time God unleashes judgment finally on his people, is that they have violated this. They've gotten into idolatry, immorality, and injustice. But believe it or not, even more than idolatry, it is injustice to which the prophets speak the most. It is injustice. And because we are agents of restoration, as redeemed image bearers of God, we walk with him into a society where we should be bringers of shalom and of wholeness. We're men and women who are helping to weave back together the fabric of wholeness in our society. In families, in marriages, individual lives. Some of the ways that, that we can do this, especially in crazy times like right now, is don't, uh, don't over-purchase, Right? So, um, uh, are anybody hearing on the news that, that stores are starting to see a little bit of what we went through in March and April? People running on the stores? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I found that amusing back then. And I'm not saying don't have a, a reasonable amount on hand, right? I mean, it's, it's good to be prudent and wise. Um, but I can remember distinctly uh, a few months before we moved. Everyone was laughing about the toilet paper purchases, right, across the country. How much toilet paper does one family need? How much toilet paper does one individual need? And I don't know how bare the stores were, because I wasn't here in March and April, but they were pretty bare in Texas for a little while. Um, but I remember watching a lady push her buggy out of a dollar store, and you could not have fit uh, more toilet paper on it. It was stacked underneath as high as it would go. It was stacked in. It was stacked on top. And it was all I could do not to ask her, like, how many bottoms you got in your home? I'm just curious. I'm not I'm not trying to judge. I'm just curious if you're buying from multiple families, right? But part of what we were trying to do to calm our church people at that time was say, hey, get what you need for where you can get it. But don't take more than you need. Leave what you can for other people that are going to need it. Um, not overpurchasing leads us uh, in big ways to not living beyond our means. And, and this is, guys, this is always where God calls us to live. The Old Testament had a series of laws called gleaning laws. Some of you will be familiar with those, some of you will not. Gleaning laws. But basically what the gleaning laws were, were were God's teaching to the farmers of Israel that when they grew crops and harvested crops, they were not to harvest every single last bit of the crop. Leave the corners, leave the edges, leave those things that they don't get with the first swipe through. So that the immigrants and the fatherless and the widows can come and freely eat. Right, Well, one of the ways that we practice the principle behind gleaning laws today is that we seek to to try and live below our means a little bit so that there's a little margin there, so that when we find someone who's in need, we can help. And it's a recognition that um, despite what we think, like I pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I've made every dollar I made and I'm responsible for me, That whatever we've done, we've done it with health that God's given us. We've done it with opportunities that God's given us. We've done it with a little help along the way from other people. We do it with oxygen God gives us to breathe every day. And, And these moments of vocational satisfaction and financial gain are moments and opportunities for worship in our lives. But God is serious about how we treat the others. And love for those in society who are not at home in society for, for whatever reason. For whatever reason. So I don't, know, I don't know what you would take and do with this in your own life. But I know collectively as the people of God, this is, this is who we are. We care for those that are on the fringes of whatever society we find ourselves in as the church. And you know what, when we do this, in our context when we do this, it begins separating cultural Christianity from biblical Christianity in a way that we very much need to be done. We sang uh, just a few minutes ago, in the morning you sing over me and I receive mercy. Lyrics pulled uh, at least from Zephaniah 3, maybe from parts of Psalms as well. But that's a powerful thing to, to picture. That in the morning you sing over me and I receive mercy. That God sings in delight over you. And he extends endless mercy to you. Regardless of sin, of hardness of heart, of bitterness, of anger. And when we receive that and when we realize that, it begins to soften hard hearts. And it begins to give us a little bit better ability at seeing people that we may not have seen before. And seeing them as God sees them. When we look back at, at Micah, the last thing that I would just call your attention to this morning, really specifically from, from verse 8, and, and really if you go back and look at 6, part of what he's doing with these rhetorical questions in 6 and 7 is he's saying, what kind of religious acts can I do that are going to please you, right? What kind of, a, what kind of spiritual discipline, spiritual formation, what kind of corporate worship acts can I do that are going to please you or satisfy you, God? And he comes back and says, "None of that. God has revealed to you what is good. It's to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God." Part of what we're seeing here is what the prophets affirm over and over and over. And it's simply that outward spiritual reality or, or outward spiritual um, spirituality requires inward transformation. I just messed that all up, so I'm going to say it one more time clearly. Hopefully, outward outward spirituality requires inward transformation in other words the outward religious acts that we do as we gather as we sing together as we gather in bible studies as we give in an acknowledgement that all that we have is God and we give a portion back to him for his kingdom work and to guard our souls against greed that whatever we're doing praying giving directly to the poor whatever we're doing that outward spirituality requires An inward transformation. Let me read a little passage from you uh, from Isaiah chapter 1 that I found very unsettling a few years ago. uh, Though I'd read it before, it just kind of wrapped itself around me. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning with verse 11. Isaiah dealing with the same kinds of things that were going on in Judah in the southern kingdom were just going on in Israel in the northern kingdom. Beginning with verse 11, Isaiah 1 says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come appear before me, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations. And just hear this like this. He could say Sunday morning worship, Wednesday night Bible study, Sunday school class, I and mean, we could throw our things in here. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. That's strong language, is it not? I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now listen to verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. See, I was told over and over all the time, I pray God always hears. But you find this, you find in 1 Peter 3-7, that men especially, our prayers are affected and God's hearing of them and responding to them by how we treat our wives nothing we do requires anything of god now look at verse 16 he says wash and make yourselves clean take your evil deeds out of my sight stop doing wrong learn to do right seek justice defend the oppressed take up the cause of the fatherless plead the case of the widow and then he says verse 18 i don't even yeah we've got it up here then comes verse 18 come now let us settle the matter Says the Lord. Any of you grow up uh, just reading that? Come now, let us reason together. That's still stuck in my mind. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you go back and look and you read the, the book of Isaiah, it was how the people of God were treating others that was shutting off God from their worship and their prayer life. God says, I want nothing to do with it. Because of your injustice, you've got blood on your hands. It's a powerful picture. One Old Testament scholar says this, just speaking of the prophets in general. Without love, holiness of heart, and righteousness of life, flowing from faith in Christ, all our church-going forms of prayer and giving profits us nothing. Profits us nothing. Nothing. I told you that Jesus has a, uh, one of those summarizing statements that you, many of you will know well. Uh, we'll read it from Matthew chapter 22. We call it the greatest commandment. But it is a summary statement of God's expectations and his requirements of his people who live in covenant relationship with him. Let's look at verse 34 of Matthew 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. I guess they thought the Sadducees weren't up to par with him. So like, well, the Sadducees made a good run at him, but they're not that smart. So let's get together, and we're going we're to test him. Verse 35, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, they're just hoping Jesus will answer. They'd had a lot of exposure to him by now. You would have thought they knew by this point they could not best him, right? But they're thinking, if we could just get him to name something, then we can say, "Ah, he takes this serious, but not that serious. No true prophet, no true man of God, no true rabbi would do that. Verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang On those two commandments. Now question. Was Jesus asked. What the most important. And second most important commandment was. No he wasn't. He was asked. What the most important commandment was. And he reaches back to Deuteronomy. But Jesus sees these so closely tied together. Our love of God. With our love for people. That he will not give credence to one without the other. He will not teach one without teaching the other. They're completely joined together, church. In fact, I would say our relationship with God is revealed by how we relate to others. And most clearly by how we relate to others who are not like us and are not in positions of power or maybe have the voice that we have or the affluence that we have, or the education that we have. As John and the band make their way back up here, um, I just want to remind you this morning, as we continue to, to, to live out a season, at least in our nation's history, where so many voices and so many factions want to pit us against one another as citizens that we are first and foremost the church, we're the people of God. And what God longs for from us is the same thing that he longed for and taught for his covenant people in the Old Testament, the same thing that Jesus summarizes in the New Testament when he says, hey, you want to know what it's like to belong to God? Do you want to know what it's like to walk in a pleasing manner for him? Love him with all that you are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second's like it. You love others as you love yourself. It's amazing how the entirety of what it means to walk with God, to be a follower of Christ, and to be pleasing before God is tied up in that one word, love. Love. Jesus said the same thing earlier in his ministry. He said, oh, the world will know. The world will know who's mine by the distinct and unique way that you love one another. Other people don't have that kind of power. Only the Holy Spirit gives it. You can love across economic lines. You can love across racial lines. You can love across age demographics. You can love across um, different political views. You can love across matters of affluence and position and power drawn in by the beautifully level nature of the foot of the cross. This is who we are. the prophets were pointing God's people back to God's kingdom work reminding them that a coming redemption is in store that God is going to faithfully send the Messiah but that redemption even as beautiful and glorious as it is is not the end it is a means to the end of restoration and God calls us to join him in that work let's stand and pray this morning God, it's, it's so easy. It's so easy, Lord, in my own life, my own heart and with my own words, to be dismissive, God, or to look down on those that are other. But Father, they are people made in your image. God, we are a people who owe our redemption, God, who owe our active part in your restoring work on earth fully to you. God, I pray that we would represent you well as a church family. God, that we would be salt and would be light. God, these are are phrases of restoration as you use us. God, that when people look in on us, the way that we relate to one another, the way that we talk to one another, the way that we submit to one another, God, that they'd see a true reflection of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Remind us today, God, that we serve not only a coming king, but a suffering servant. God, stir and move in our hearts. And if there's anything this morning right now, in any heart in this room that needs to be confessed, I pray that your grace would win in this place, God. That quietly where we are, we would just say, God, forgive me for whatever it may be. Jesus, we place ourselves in your beautiful, capable hands. I pray in your name. Amen.